Well, uh, good morning again. So my name is John. Glad to have you here worshiping with us. And uh, our scripture passage today is not a typo. It's Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 31. Uh, for those of us that have been with us through the series of Exodus, we started it over a year ago. And then it took about almost five months just to get through chapter 20. Uh, and so now we're making up time by knocking out six chapters in 30 minutes. So uh, buckle your seatbelts. Um, we're not going to read all of it. Uh, so you can open your Bibles. I'll be referring to certain sections. But on the screen, I'm going to just read portions of it, some key portions that will help you uh, understand what's going on here. So this is Exodus 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Make a table of acacia wood, Two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make the lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms in one piece with them. Make a tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven in to them by a skilled worker. For the entrance of the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a courtyard for the temple. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long, and it is to have curtains of finely twisted linen, with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases, and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall also be a hundred cubits long, and it is to have curtains with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases, and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain twenty cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, with four posts and four bases. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron, for his consecration, so he may serve me as a priest. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen and the work of skilled hands. Take two onyx stones and engrave them on, the names of the, on them the names of the son of Israel in order of their birth. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar 
and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. Overlay the top and all sides of the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it in between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us again. You know our hearts, Lord. You know the stories and the burdens and the anxieties of everybody here today. And we pray, Lord, that as I speak, you would speak to each one of us and that you would work in our hearts something that only you can do, that you would actually be building your home in us through the power of your word. And only you can do this, and we ask you that you would. And it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, uh, by this time, probably most all of you know that we just recently moved at the beginning of the year. And I was actually thinking about this uh, the other day and worried that some people might wonder what's going on because we just moved but hardly told anyone about it. Like, maybe are we trying to get away from people or too many people visiting at our house? What is it? Well, actually, it happened so fast that we were trying to play catch-up as well. We had been talking kind of generally over the last year or two about getting a house with some more garage space. We wanted one extra bedroom, but we still wanted the kids to be able to walk to school. So we had a really narrow bubble of where we were willing to buy. And out of the blue, a house that met every single one of those criteria fell into our lap. It was offered to us before it even went on the market. And so we went from thinking that we weren't going to move for a while because of how crazy everything is to putting in an offer on a home all within a day or less. And we feel incredibly blessed. And hopefully when the weather gets nicer and it's warmer outside, we'll invite everybody over and you can see where we live and we'll have a big open house. But as we were moving, it was hard for us to leave our old house. Uh, We built it almost eight years ago. And every room in that house has some story. I remember eight years ago, over eight years ago, uh, sitting in the design center with Lisa and Molly, who's 10 now, and she was about two and a half back then, and Hannah, who was just in a little baby carrier, three months old, and Lisa and I were debating what paint colors did we want to choose in this house. I remember special ordering these tiles from R.C. Willie that we were going to use as kind of an accent strip on the backsplash that I installed in our kitchen before we moved in. I remember a couple summers or uh, falls after moving in, digging out hundreds of pounds of rock from the dirt in our front strip so we could plant probably 70-some tulip bulbs that welcome us every spring. Now, thankfully, we didn't have to sell our old home, uh, but we're renting out to a family that just moved here from Florida. And, And I met with them earlier this week just to show them around the house. And in every room, I was tempted to tell them some story of why things are the way they are in this room. But our renters didn't care about any of that. (laughs) They didn't want a five-hour living history of an eight-year-old house. They just wanted to know, well, why didn't the gas burner turn on right away? Or why did the blinds in the master bedroom not go up all the way? But for us, 
This was our first home as a family, really. We'd poured a lot into it. We cared about every little detail. And I'm sure many of you feel the same way about those first homes you bought. And it's similar here in our passage that God is giving Israel the plans for their home. That this home that is going to be for God and his people where they can live together. And so while many of these details may not feel very significant for us, they were significant to God and his people. They were the design plans for this new home. And so we're covering a lot of ground today. And so do your best to keep up. You might want to jot down some of these references, and then you can always listen to the recording later if you want. But here's what I want you to remember. God is making a home for his people. God is making a home for his people. And we're going to look at that under three points. First, the purpose of the home, the plan, and then third, the perfection. So first, the purpose. The first half of Exodus, if you've been with us, it's just packed with exciting stories. Babies floating down rivers, (laughs) unburning bushes, frogs crawling all over you while you sleep. But then halfway through the book, it takes a sudden turn And we start having chapters that read like technical manuals. And why is this? What's the reason for this sudden shift? We're actually given that reason in in chapter 29, verses 42 to 45. God says, For the generations to come, there I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the palace will be consecrated by my glory. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. So these are God's plan for a home, and not just a home for eight years, but a home for generations. God is building a place where he and his people can be together. All of us, we probably have more virtual meetings now than we did several years ago, and and these can be handy. They can let you see people that you wouldn't have been able to see normally. But, But God isn't happy with just virtually meeting with his people forever. They need to live together. They need to be able to see each other, to be in each other's presence. Israel had had this long-distance relationship for for long enough. If you remember, what is one of the key reasons why God wanted his people to be free? Well, if you go back to Exodus 8.1, it says, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so they can worship me. And so all these instructions that are a little bit tedious for us are the climax of the Exodus. I got you out of Egypt so that you can worship me, so that I could build a dream house for us. And guess what? We're about to break ground on it. And so this then leads us to the second point, the purpose of this home. Now, when we were building our house, we designed it in line with how we wanted to use it, how our family would use it. And and what then is the purpose behind the design of this home for God? Well, then after almost every set of instructions, it ends with these words. Make this according to how you were shown on the mountain. Again and again, it says that. These are the design documents. And if you've ever designed a home and you pick the paint color... You wouldn't be happy if the contractor looked at your paint color and said, oh, that's a nice suggestion, but I have a better choice. And then you go to your house and have a totally different paint than what you picked, right? These aren't suggestions. These are instructions. And so what are these features of God's building plan? Well, there are three main areas in it. 
First, there's a, a large courtyard that surrounds it all, that is covered with curtains. This is detailed in chapter 27. And these heavy, heavy, heavy curtains of linen have bronze tent pegs and silver hooks that attach the curtains to the beams. And inside that courtyard was a large altar that was covered in bronze and had bronze utensils. And on the altar, it, would be, it was made for burnt offerings. It was essentially this gigantic barbecue. And then there was a bronze wash basin where the priests, after having performed these sacrifices, could walk to the wash basin and cleanse themselves before they walk into the actual tent of the temple. And then there is what is the tabernacle itself. This is the tent, also called the tent of meeting, because this is the specific place that God was going to meet with his people. And so it's a large tent that is divided into two rooms, which are described in chapter 26. And the tabernacle tent is made with really thick and, and, and weaved dark purple and blue and scarlet yarns, and then also weaved with linen. It would have been very thick and heavy fabric. And then there's actually several layers of fabric on it. So there's this weave of fabric, and then there's goat hair, then there's dyed ram skin, and then it says there's some other durable leather on the outside. This is something like an early version of a technical parka or technical camping tent where you have multi-layer protection. You've got the hard shell outer fabric that handles the abrasion of the rocks and the trees. You've got your waterproof Gore-Tex membrane. You've got an insulating layer. And then you've got maybe a soft inner layer that feels good next to the skin. But what is this technical parka protecting? Well, it's actually kind of the opposite of, of a, a coat. It's protecting the people on the outside from the presence of God on the inside. And these, this tabernacle, this tent, is broken up into two rooms. There's the holy place, and inside that is a table, chapter 25, overlaid with gold that holds this consecrated bread. There's a smaller altar in it for burning incense that's also covered in gold. And then there's a lampstand that's made of pure gold, fashioned to look something like the branches of trees with buds and flowers on them. And then there are seven wicks or seven lights that you would light and would light up that room. And then as you move in further, there's the most holy place where only the high priest can enter and only at certain times of the year. And in the middle of that most holy place is what's called the ark, which is this large box covered in gold, and it would house these sacred items of Israel. And on the lid is solid gold, which would have been incredibly heavy. And on the lid are these two cherubim, heavenly creatures, each with their wings pointed upward, covering the ark. And the ark is the central feature of the tabernacle. It is why everything else around it exists. It's the nuclear core, and everything around it is there supporting it to prevent some sort of meltdown. In this place, on the ark, or above the ark, is where God is. Chapter 25, verse 22. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, how will God meet with the people there? Because only Aaron, the high priest, and then certain of his descendants will be allowed in that space where God is. 
the, the closest the rest of the people will get would be that courtyard, which is separated by several layers of thick fabric and leather. It would be this extreme God protection from where God's presence is manifested. And that's why we then need to look at the priest's clothing, because right in the middle of these building instructions, God gives wardrobe instructions as well. This is chapter 28. And the materials used for Aaron's clothing are the same materials used for much of the tabernacle. Quote, have them use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So if you picture it, the priest standing in, say, the holy space would blend in to the walls of the tent, except in certain areas. One, he's wearing this thing called an ephod, which are like these shoulder pads with stones on them. And on each stone are the names of the tribes of Israel. And then additionally, he'll be wearing this breastplate that had on it four rows of three uh, precious stones each. And, and these would have stood out in contrast. Again, picture it. This dark tent with a man dressed in dark clothing, the same fabric as the tent is. And yet, these jewels would have reflected off him off the light of the nightstand, of the, of the lampstand. It, it would have looked like stars against that backdrop. And each stone on the breastplate is engraved with one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And so it says in 28, verse 29, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart. So though the, the masses can't physically be there in that space, their names, they are there in their names, are written over Aaron's heart and on his shoulders. Okay, so we've gone through a lot, but hopefully you've kind of followed the general outline. We've looked at some of the details, but why is God so specific? Now, we should just dismiss these things because God really cared about them following his instructions. He says it over and over again. Follow the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. Why does God care so much about this? I think the clearest answer we get is when we jump to Hebrews 8, verse 5. And there the author says this, This tabernacle served as a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, quote, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Why did God care so much about what this looked like? Because God was building a diorama of the cosmic order. He was showing his people this is how the world was made. This is what the cosmic structure looks like. That's why you need to follow this. And he, he was teaching them something. And if we go back and look at several of the details, we can notice patterns that make light in, that make sense in light of the idea that the temple was actually God's model of the universe. So the courtyard, where the Israelites could visit and, 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 and be, is filled with this wash basin, which elsewhere it's called not a basin, but the sea. And what do we have then in the courtyard? You have land and sea. It represents the earth where people live, where the Israelites live. And then as you move in, it's almost like you're 
in a rocket blasting off up into the heavens because you, you move from where things are mostly fashioned out of bronze and now they're being fashioned out of gold and, and greater, more valuable uh, things. And then you get heavenly creatures, cherubim, that are embroidered into the linen walls. And again, picture it with me. Inside that dark tent, what do you see? Seven lights. In the ancients of this time, they knew of seven major lights in the night sky. There were five bright stars. Some of them were planets, actually. And then the sun and the moon. And so suddenly, if you were standing on the edge of that, looking into that darkness, it would be like you were peering into the night sky and seeing these lights of heaven illuminating. And reflecting off those inky walls would be these shadows of cherubim. It would be as if you were peering into the heavens. Now, there's tons of parallels we could go into, but we don't have time here. But just notice some of the similarities between how it describes God creating the world and how the tabernacle was built. So Psalm 104, verse 3. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Or Isaiah 40, verse 22. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. These passages are describing how God created the world using the language of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a living diorama of the universe. Listen to Psalm 78, verse 69. God built his sanctuary like the heights. So that means the heavens. He built his tabernacle like the heavens, like the earth that he established forever. And so as you move past that holy place, getting further and further up into space, you go through another curtain and enter into what? The most holy place, which in the temple would be this room of pure gold where God sits surrounded by cherubim. You've entered into God's throne room. And this then leads us to our third point, the perfection. So this tabernacle is central for allowing Israel to worship to be with their God. And yet it also highlights one problem that leaving Egypt didn't fix. Though they are closer to God, they're still separated from him. They're still triple, triple layer, Gore-Tex extreme, separating them from God. And why is this? Well, it's because though the people got out of Egypt, Egypt didn't fully get out of the people. Go, let's go back to the purpose of this temple. What were the two things that God accomplishes with these instructions? Chapter 29, verse 44. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. So what we see here is there, in order for God to have communion with his people, he needs there to be a right place for it and the right people that can make it happen. Egypt wasn't the right place. They couldn't build a tabernacle or temple in Egypt. But now the people have a place where they can do it. Now, it's a moving place. You'll notice that all the furnishings come with rings that you can slide poles into so these things can be carried and moved. It highlights that a better, more permanent place is needed. But though they have a place, God still needed 
the right people. People that could be in his presence. People that reflected that perfection of God, who could stand to be in his holiness without it just destroying them. And so they need to settle for a person who can represent them and then do all these purification rites and and sacrifices so that he can then go into God's presence. And the way he brings the people into God's presence is by carrying their names on his shoulders and over his heart. Now, that's better than what they had, but that's not a great way to have an intimate relationship with someone. It, It would be like visiting a loved one in a high-security prison, and you place your hand up to the thick glass, and they stick their hand in the same place on the other side, but you can't feel any of the warmth. And this brings us back to Hebrews, but going forward to chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Under the Old Covenant, so speaking about this time of Moses, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice, good for all time. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, There is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So do you see what Christ has done? This is a thick passage. But notice some of these things. Christ is the true high priest, better than Aaron, because he gets to walk into not the diorama of the heavens, but actually into the holy of holies, what the tabernacle is a shadow of. And he doesn't just carry your names written on stone, but he carries you into God's throne room. And there he takes every one of your sins, every one of your failures, all of your addictions, your shame, and he says, it is mine. And he stands before God and says, I'm the sinner now. I'm the sacrifice. Take me. Listen to Colossians 2, verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised. Not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. It's saying, when you put your faith in Jesus, what does he do? He performs a spiritual surgery that cuts away your sin. He takes it and makes it his and dies with it. And then he not only then leaves you with that gaping hole, but he fills you with his righteousness, his perfection. Did you catch that back in Hebrews 10, verse 14? For by that one offering, Christ forever made perfect those who are being made holy. There's this both and situation here where on one hand, we know we're not holy. We mess up all the time. We screw up. And yet on the other hand, what Christ did on the cross is he has made you perfect forever so that no more work is needed. 
You are perfect in God's sight. And though you are still being made holy so that your head and your toes and your fingers reflect that perfection, you are the work is finished. Through Christ, you are completely worthy to walk into that heavenly space as a beloved son or daughter of the king with no spot or wrinkle, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide. Jesus has taken it all. And he said, this is your home now. And then one other passage, Colossians 3, verse 1. What does that mean for us right now? Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, do you see what that means? This should alter every aspect of your life, that when you first trusted in Christ, Christ did not just take your name to heaven, like on a list and check it off, like Aaron did on his uh, head and or his shoulders and heart. Christ, in a way that we cannot understand, has actually taken you into heaven. To put it another way, what has happened when you trust in Christ is that heaven has actually broken into your heart at that moment. That there has been a portal that is created from that holy space in heaven right into the center of your heart. That the true holy of holies has shed abroad in your soul. In this moment, God is alive in you. And you have become his holy dwelling. Not his future dwelling, not his diorama dwelling, not his temporary dwelling, but forever dwelling right now. Ephesians 1 verse 10. God tells us, what's his grand plan for the, the world? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Christ has separated that distance from heaven to earth in himself. He has become the people and the place where God can meet with his beloved. And that has begun by uniting your heart with heaven through Christ right now. And one day, that heaven that has first started in your heart will have worked its way out to your head and your toes so that you will be perfect in body and in soul. And that holy space that was confined in that one room will have broken out to fill all of creation. Everything will be made holy. And then the work of God building his forever home will be complete and the world will be his holy temple. Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, because all these things are gone forever. So let me just end with a few brief and pointed applications. What does this mean for us right now? Brothers and sisters, heaven has shed abroad in your heart. 
And so if that is the case, why is your heart still so wrapped up in the things of this world? Things that in the end will only turn to dust when you have the gems of heaven shining in your heart right now. If heaven is shed abroad in your heart, why have you grown comfortable with the sin that is in your life? Why do you minimize it? Why do you negotiate it? Why do you think, oh, it's not that big of a deal? I know for me, it's often because I believe, well, that sin, it's kind of like, just it, it offers some pleasure, some gratification, some release. And honestly, I don't want to give that up. But friends, if heaven has broken through into your heart, you have a pleasure that is so much greater than whatever that sin may offer. Drink from the waters of life that are so close to you and will feed your soul in ways that sin never can. Why, if heaven has shed abroad in our hearts, do we not make gathering for worship more of a priority? In 1 Peter, it talks about how we are the living stones of God's house. We are his temple. You You can see what that means now. And every time we gather, that is like a dress rehearsal for that final building of heaven, the greatest building project in all the world. And every time we gather, we get to practice that and get a taste of that. And I know we are in a time, a long time, where it is complicated, and there are reasons why some of us can't gather. But it has to be the priority in your life. And if you're willing to go out to eat or to go travel, but not willing to come to worship, maybe those priorities are off. If heaven has shed abroad in our hearts... Why are you so wrapped up in things that in light of eternity will look so dim? One very specific thing. Why do you let yourself get so upset because of a mask mandate? Or because of all the people that you see don't wearing masks and, and you're, well, I wear a mask all the time. Now, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. It does matter. But when you obsess about, well, who's doing this or who's not doing this, It's like you're obsessing over bits of sand in your shoe when you have the treasures of heaven sitting in your soul. This is crucial for us. We have the beginnings of heaven in us right now. So why are we not living that way? In how we worry about things, we get angry, we're jealous, we always want more, we're perpetually unsatisfied. Why do we look like our neighbors, exactly like our neighbors who know nothing of the riches and joy of Christ, let alone have his presence in their hearts? Jordan Valley Church must be the fragrance of Christ in a world that reeks of death. We must operate not in the rules of this world and the economy of the world, but we must operate under the economy of heaven that is breaking through into our lives through Christ and is manifest when we gather together. We must live. Though this world is ever darkening, we must live with a joyful hope that beams through our faces because we know how close heaven is. And the darker it may get out there, the brighter we shine in contrast to it. So, who knew 
such wonderful truths could come from these chapters we might be tempted to skip. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would reveal to us what is already ours in Christ. That the very riches of heaven are so much closer than we realize. And that for when those of us who trust in Christ, this mind-blowing thing has happened in us. The perfection of God is alive inside of us. And Father, we don't feel that way most of the time. And honestly, we live like that's not the case. But we ask that you would open our eyes, especially as we are gathered here together as your living stones, that you would remind us of what is ours right now in Christ and help us to live that way, that it would make a difference tomorrow when we go back to work or this afternoon when we're having different, difficult conversations with family, wrangling kids. Lord, help us to smell of heaven. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.